This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we invite NetApp Technical Director Shankar Pasapathy on to talk about machine learning, hybrid cloud, and active IQ. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. I love NetApp because it's so funny. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm sitting here with Shankar, um, oh my goodness, I'm going to butcher this, Pasapathy. Is that right? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so, yeah, Shankar Pasupati, yeah. Nice. Or, uh, I can introduce myself to a TV or Well, no, I, I, I nearly got it. <laughs> so, so, Shankar. So if you're... Go ahead. If you're going to introduce me, then uh, I, I suggest uh, say technical director of Active IQ and say that I'm responsible for uh, three things. One is data engineering. Uh-huh. Uh, the second is our machine learning and AI for that system. And the third thing is for about 10 applications we build with all this data. Well, I was just going to ask you all that, but you already answered it. Okay. You must have <laughs> been using your machine learning uh, to, <laughs> to know what I was going to ask. <laughs> Predictive analytics, um, that's right. Yeah, so analytics, you must have taken all the podcast episodes and realized that I have a pattern, <laughs> and now you have learned that I, you become sentient. <laughs> Speaking of machine learning, um, today we're going to talk about Active IQ, and we're going to talk a little bit about the inner workings of it and how it all ties together in the back end. Um, but before we do that, uh, Shankar, I want you to tell the audience what Active IQ is. So ActiveIQ is the name for our uh, telemetry ecosystem. Uh, you know, it used to be called auto support. And as it evolved considerably, we, we decided to rename it as ActiveIQ to better reflect its capabilities. Um, so essentially all of NetApp's, um, you know, storage endpoints, this, this includes our physical hardware as well as software, uh, send us data back every single day. You know, in some cases, as often as five seconds. And we, we get three kinds of data back. Uh, one is configuration data. Second is performance counters. And the third is system logs. You know, this could be your operating system logs, your, your storage logs. All of this comes back to us. And all of this feeds into a, a data pipeline that we call the Active IQ platform. This data is then used for a variety of purposes. Uh, historically, it was used for customer support, especially, you know, uh, this was the system used to detect when a disk would fail and send a replacement to a customer. But it evolved a lot more than that. So, for example, today uh, we have a desktop app and also a mobile app, both of which are called ActiveIQ as well. Um, and these give our customers insights into what's going on with their storage systems. So you can do simple things like just look at the inventory that you have. Uh, you can figure out which of your systems are about to expire in terms of support. You can also do more sophisticated things like compare the behavior of your system with, with other systems or understand what risks you have um, and, and things of that sort, right? Internally, the data is also used uh, by about a 1,500 engineers to um, understand what future products we build. You know, for example, we may notice that uh, most of our customers are using a particular feature a certain way, or they're not using a 
feature that we put in. And so this helps us refine our product roadmaps as we go along. So does this also tie into the Elio chat support system as well? Yeah, so the Elio system is, is related to this. So on our customer support dashboard, which, which feeds in information from ActiveIQ, we also have this chatbot called Elio. And um, Elio was built in uh, partnership with IBM Watson. And it, it scans all of our uh, documents. And it's a way by which a customer can sort of self-support themselves and quickly get answers to questions. You know, like if you have a question, say, you know, how do I configure a flex wall? Um, it's very easy to get an answer with Elio. Uh, we call it guided problem solving. You know, we have all this data and we've been collecting it for years. Um, and really, data is only as valuable as how you use it. And customers get something out of it as well. They get the support aspect. They get the disks being sent automatically. They get, you know, us monitoring their systems in, in, in proactively in some cases with our ARS signatures. So we see, you know, if you've hit a certain number of threshold errors, we'll send you a message saying, hey, by the way, you're hitting this error a lot. You may want to look into these sorts of things, right? Yeah, that's right. So it's a good point. So, you know, we're obviously, you know, gathering lots more data than we used to in the past. Um, you know, I, I have to say that we were probably the first company to even build a telemetry system way before the term big data became popular. So we've been doing this since 1995. Um, and until about 2012, uh, we were getting about, you know, 100 terabytes a year of data. So, you know, not a whole lot. And all of it was just in an Oracle database. Um, since then, uh, you know, the volume of data we get today is about 135 terabytes a month, and it's doubling roughly every eight months. So now that we have this vast amount of data, to your point, um, not only can we tell you about your systems, we can do a lot of comparative analysis. So we call this community wisdom. So using different machine learning techniques, we can tell you, you know, that your performance relative to others that have similar workloads is the following. And here's what you can do to improve your state. Right? That's something we're working on right now. Uh, what's already in our uh, active IQ product today is something called Risk Advisor. And so that can tell you that if you upgrade your operating system version, how likely is it that you're going to eliminate risks that exist based on what we've observed from other customers that did the same thing? Right? So that's very powerful. It's in fact, I'd say one of our most popular new features. Um, we have a flash advisor that uses, again, some advanced analytics to tell you which workloads are better suited for flash and gives you data-driven reasons why you got to get there. So, so this vast amount of data we collect definitely helps us gather a lot more insights than we used to in the past. Yeah, and this is you know not dissimilar to other uses of machine learning and, and AI. Um, so, for example, there's a commercial out there about IBM Watson. They talk about elevators. And the elevators can predict when they're going to fail because they have all this quantitative data about you know, when, when elevators usually fail, you know, predicting mm -hmm. the, the time frame of when failures are going to happen. You could do this probably with disks as well. Um, so it yep. takes a lot of the guesswork out of it from both the customer side as well as from your SEs and everybody else that's trying to help the customer environments and allows the machine learning to take over and you know, make accurate decisions and not base it on opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as time goes by, you know, more and more of uh, this data would be used to uh, sort of, you know, auto-tune our, our, our systems, right? Uh, there's a lot of things where, you know, humans configure uh, parameters today. 
and we believe we can eliminate that need over time. So would yeah. it tie into things like uh, storage efficiencies, like, you know, maybe looking at storage efficiencies, saying, you know, you're not really saving a whole lot from your storage efficiencies. Maybe we're, we'd suggest turning it off or scheduling it less often. Do we do that sort of thing with ActiveIQ? Uh, those are all things we're, we're actively looking at. Um, so, again, for storage efficiency, we have a comparative analysis tool that tells you where you lie relative to others uh, that have, you know, a similar set of constraints. Um, but but what you said is exactly the sorts of things we're looking at. Um, you know, so for example, we we can in future we'd be able to tell you that you can boost your storage efficiency for this workload if you you know did the following, or you know like you said maybe don't use storage efficiency uh, the the features for this particular workload because we've realized from other customers that have similar workloads uh, it's not very helpful. So these are all the sorts of things we can, you know, relatively easily do. And you'll start seeing a lot of this in the next 12 months. Excellent. So this, what sort of, what sort of uh, cadence do you have for ActiveIQ? Like what, what are the updates looking like in terms of timeframes? So we release uh, um, code every month. Um, yeah, so that's, that's an update that happens. But, you know, technically speaking, we are at a point now, and I'm going to talk about this a little later, we built. A, a new active IQ architecture that involves the use of the hybrid cloud. Because we've done that, we can actually, you know, potentially release a, a new offering even every day if we have to. Every other day, how? How would we go about that? Like, how would that take place? Yeah, so, so you know, historically, uh, you know, uh, people have, you know, been building uh, these, these sorts of applications, telemetry processing systems on-premises, completely on-premises. Uh, and that has certain advantages, but it also has some some disadvantages. Like I'll give you an example. So suppose uh, you know you have you know 30 developers doing lots of different things. You can often be gated on a single QA environment, and that that does happen for us occasionally, right? Where we have a lot of developers making changes, and you have one Hadoop cluster for QA, and that becomes your bottleneck. Well, so the alternative on-premise is to spin up more Hadoop clusters. But that comes at considerable expense. And again, because of the way the Hadoop file system works, you end up with lots of copies of data, uh, none of which is very productive. So what we've done is, you know, we have redesigned the ActiveIQ data pipeline so that anything that occurs 24 by 7, so that, you know, that's our traditional telemetry processing stuff, happens on-premises. So we have a giant Hadoop cluster to take care of that. What we've done is using our data fabric, we copy some portion of our data seamlessly every single day um, to cloud volumes. So cloud volumes are NetApp's new you know, storage as a service offering. And cloud volumes essentially coexist with the public cloud, right? Um, so your data is safe and secure. It's not you know, really in the public cloud, it's co-located. And we have a very high speed connection from these volumes to the public clouds, to Amazon, Google, Azure, Alibaba, and so on. And then what we do is we run, we spin up our Hadoop clusters on the fly in, say, for example, Amazon, attached to this data and cloud volumes, run our QA test and shut the whole thing down. And, and this thing has been completely automated to the point that for some portions of our ecosystem, a developer just has to check in some code and you know click a button and Everything is automated, right? From spinning up these Hadoop clusters uh, in the cloud 
reading the data from cloud volumes, running our system tests, and shutting it down. And, and because of this, we're able to you know test our code much faster, and therefore we'd be able to you know ship our code much faster as well. And, and you know I should also mention that this has also reduced our cost you know considerably um, because of this and some other things we've done. Um, if, if you look at our total spend on um, you know our Hadoop licenses and our uh, physical infrastructure that has come down about 25-30% year over year. Okay, so you mentioned cloud volumes and you know we've often touted the data fabric and cloud as being the future. So that just mm -hmm. shows that we're not just saying it because we think it's buzzy and cool. We actually believe in it and we're actually leveraging it ourselves within our own environments. Right, absolutely. So maybe let me take uh, people through our, our evolution of auto support, right? Where we started and how we got to where we are. And yeah, you know, absolutely, we did these things for ourselves, right? Um, you know, one thing for everyone to remember is that while we work for NetApp, uh, we are not restricted to use only NetApp products. If, for example, we, we found that using direct attached storage on-premises was the best thing to do, we would have absolutely done that. Uh, in fact, we used to use that for a while. <laughs> Since then, we have changed. Um, so, so like I said, in the in the early days, we were a simple database, um, primarily for customer support, and uh, you know to detect when disks fail. That was the big thing we we did. You know, today that whole ecosystem of detecting when a disk is going to fail and shipping a new replacement to our customers that's completely automated. There's absolutely no human involvement, even as far as you know printing the. Label. What happened in 2012 is, you know, we were getting so much data that we realized, you know, we got to stop using just a single database, and essentially we have to move to Hadoop. And the the the, the wisdom at that time was to, you know, build your Hadoop using um, direct attached storage, which which makes sense because, you know, also, um, you know, earlier on the networks were not that fast, uh, the volumes of data were not that great, um, so that's what we did, which is which is what most uh, people do. But then we realized that, you know, we were building too many Hadoop clusters because we had one Hadoop cluster for our, our production, sort of event processing, real-time use cases. We had one giant data lake, which essentially was a copy of the data that was in our production system. Uh, we had smaller Hadoop clusters for QA, for people doing POCs. Um, you know, more recently, people trying to do machine learning. So we were just creating lots and lots of Hadoop clusters that essentially had, you know, copies of, you know, fractions of the same data. So we very quickly end up with, you know, 20, 30 copies of the data, compounded compounded by the fact that, um, you know, HDFS internally makes three copies of the data. Now I know that's changing with HDFS 3.0 and erasure coding, uh, but I'll talk about that a little later. We looked at looked at our spend, which was just, you know, getting out of control. Uh, compounded by the fact that we're also doubling our data growth every eight months. And then there was a third significant thing that happened. The last few years, um, we hired some data scientists. And, you know, anyone that's worked with data scientists knows this, right? They don't really care about, uh, you know, the properties of, you know, the storage system. They just want quick and easy access to the data and the ability to spin up any software stack to tap into the data. You know, what I mean is, you know, we have one data scientist whose favorite stack is, you know, using R and some other stuff. We have another data scientist that happens to love, you know, AWS and running TensorFlow uh, in AWS. 
we have a couple of people that like uh, the, the Google Compute Platform and some people that like Azure's HD Insight. Now, you, you can't cater to all these different needs on-premises, and it doesn't work to tell all your data scientists, you know, all of you need to write your code in Python. Just That just doesn't work. So we had two problems to summarize, right? One is our rapidly, rapidly increasing costs for our infrastructure. This is both, you know, for storage as well as Hadoop nodes on-premises. And these data scientists wanting freedom, which we couldn't give them on-premises. So we, we first decided to solve the on-premises infrastructure problem, right? We decided to, to consolidate our data on an on-tap all-flash array. And when we first did this, you know, people thought we were stupid, right? Because first of all, flash is more expensive than disk. And secondly, it's shared storage, it's running NFS. So we solved the NFS problem essentially a couple of years back We, we in, in our research group. We had someone build a piece of software called the NFS connector. And that makes NFS look like HDFS to any piece of software. And it's really, really easy to deploy just a Java jar file that you drop into any Hadoop distribution and it just works. Uh, we've tested this with all of the major vendors. Um, it's in fact certified by a couple of them. Uh, we've also tested this with, uh, uh, you know, software, analytic software running in the cloud, for example, Databricks uh, or Azure HD Insight. And, you know, we know that it works. And in fact, we use it ourselves. So that's all the the NFS problem, right? So now we're able to make NFS look like HDFS. So, so why did you use Flash? Well, the, the nice thing about Flash is that you can you can do you know compression, dedupe, compaction, extremely efficiently without affecting performance. That's exactly what we did. So, you know, the first thing is because of the way the ONTAP systems work, because of the way we are designed, uh, we don't have to make three copies of of data anymore for availability. We can get away with making just one copy of the data. On top of it, we apply all our storage efficiency options like deduplication, compression, compaction. So as a result, we went from, you know, we got 11x reduction in storage compared to direct attached storage, right? 3x reduction was because of the HDFS copies. The rest of it was because of compression, compaction, and all of that. So 11x space reduction that more than pays for you know the additional cost of flash. Also, you know, flash as you know is very compact. So, you know, in just a couple of, um, you know, I think like a four use space, we can we can hold all of this data. And it also boosted the performance of our real time uh, pipeline. So our our real time data pipeline is now 30x faster because it's you know reading from both from memory on our storage system as well as from SSD. So it's, it's blindingly fast. And then the last part of the story is, because we did all of this and we compressed our storage footprint and we got faster, we were able to reduce our Hadoop nodes by a factor of three, right? That's a huge savings in, in cost right there. So, so what I described to you is, you know, what we did on-premises to solve the infrastructure problem. Well, now what about our data scientists? How do we give them the freedom that they want? For that, we tapped into our data fabric. And so every night we essentially um, you know, use our data fabric to seamlessly move some curated data from this all-flash 
array on-premises to cloud volumes. So before we go any further, how were you moving the data? Like what, what technologies were you using to get that data from point A to point B? Right. So, so we use SnapMirror, uh, but, you know, in theory, you could use, you know, CloudSync, uh, you know, so, so there's a variety of options available uh, depending on the, the actual setup. But, but we use SnapMirror. And uh, once we get the data to cloud volumes, we use it for a couple of purposes. One is we liberate our data scientists. So now they're free to do whatever they want in any cloud they choose. In fact, we have people running certain things in cloud A and certain other things in cloud B. Um, you know, just because uh, there are, you know, different advantages in each cloud. And they can do this at the same time on the same data. That's something we can uniquely do. Um, we also use this for our QA environment. Uh, we just completed a proof of concept where we took our pipeline, moved it to one of the public clouds, attached to cloud volumes, uh, and we were able to demonstrate that it actually works out very well. Um, and it's just as fast as doing this on-premises because the latency between these public clouds and cloud volumes is actually quite low because of this thing called Direct Connect. So this is like basically MPS, essentially? Yeah, you can think of this as MPS as a service, right? With NPS, you, you have to buy your own storage uh, system and, you know, rack it up in Equinix and then connect to the public clouds. Here, we've taken away all that pain. It's, it's essentially true storage as a service, you know, with an API. So you mentioned some cost savings, right? So a lot of mm -hmm. the consternation of people using the cloud is that it's going to cost them a lot of money because of the compute. Um, however, right. you're pointing out that moving it from on-prem to cloud is actually saving us money. Can you walk us through a little bit of how that works before you carry on to the next Yeah, abs absolutely. Um, I'll give you a perfect example of this QA environment. Our QA environment, like I said, was becoming a bottleneck for our, you know, 30, 40 uh, application and data engineering developers. And uh, we were told there's no budget to expand that on-premises. And, and remember, we're not doing QA 24 by 7, right? At best, it, you know, and it tends to be very bursty, you know. Before a major release, you may have 30 developers trying to do QA, and, you know, two weeks before, maybe nobody's doing any QA. So by going to the cloud, you're just paying for the compute as and when you need it. And, uh, you know, uh, we're, you're putting some of your data in, in cloud volumes, which is, which is also, you know, very reasonably priced. And so net-net, when you look at that whole thing, it actually costs you less money than, than being on-premises. Now, if we were doing QA, you know, all day long, right, and copying all our on-premises data to the, to the uh, cloud volumes, this would not be a cost-effective thing, for sure. This is basically a CapEx versus OpEx conversation here, essentially, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And, th and there's a hidden cost-benefit to all of this, right? There's an opportunity cost. By keeping things in the public cloud, uh, or, or rather, our compute in the public cloud and attaching to cloud volumes, see, take, take what our data scientists do, right? They're constantly building these new uh, models, machine learning models, uh, deep learning models. Now, they would not be able to iterate through these things so quickly if we gave them a limited amount of compute on-premises, right? Again, by going to the cloud, uh, they're able to turn things around much faster. And so there's that benefit as well, which is really a cost benefit. Okay. So, I mean, we've looked at the numbers ourselves. And like I said, we've saved, I'd say, between 25 to 30% in our overall spend 
uh, year over year because of all these changes we made. And that doesn't include the the increased agility we've got as a result of being able to tap into the uh, hybrid club. Right. So, I mean, you, you essentially are wasting equipment when you have varsity workloads at QA where you're just leaving computers and servers and storage laying there until they're in use. Whereas with the cloud, yeah. you're you're able to use it when you need it. But also you're not dealing with the leasing and aging out of equipment. That's on that's the right. that's on the cloud provider's hands. That's right. Yeah, and, and you know, even with the cloud, because you get all these different uh, instance types at different price points, you know, very often we'll start our experiments, especially if they're doing machine learning. We'll start building models with, you know, the lowest cost uh, instances, compute instances. And, you know, they may take an awful long time to train, but, you know, who cares? Once you've got some confidence that this model works, then we pay the price for the more expensive compute instances. So there's that kind of flexibility you get in the cloud that you just don't get on-premises, right? So previously we were running all this on uh, block storage, and then we moved over to NAS using the Hadoop connector. And I can verify that it is pretty easy to use. I've actually played with it. And if I can use it, you can use it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we're doing a lot of work with uh, the analytics software providers. So you will see over time that, you know, we'll have tighter integration. So you can essentially provision our storage uh, with one click and, and not even have to deploy our connector software. That will happen. Underneath the covers, I mean, you're using ONTAP, but are you using FlexFalls or are you starting to poke around with Flex Groups? I mean, what's the storage uh, application looking like there? Right. So so on-premises, we use the, the NFS connector with, with multiple network interfaces to, to load balance across them. Um, and this is possible because of the way this NFS connector was designed. Uh, so we get pretty high bandwidth from our ONTAP cluster. Uh, in, in, in the cloud today with cloud volumes, we, uh, we you know, essentially don't use flex groups just yet, but we plan to. Because that's the way by which we can clone the data seamlessly um, to make it available for multiple QA environments, right, without actually making a full copy of the data. So there's a plan to plan to do that. You know, one thing I need to mention in terms of sort of future vision, where we are headed, um, again, relatively soon, is we want to build a truly programmable infrastructure. By that, I mean that we want all our data pipelines to spin up on the fly, completely programmable. And... As a user, you shouldn't really care whether it's on-premises or in this hybrid cloud. You know, we will intelligently decide where to spin up these pipelines, whether they're going to run on our, um, you know, on-premises physical hardware or run in the in the cloud. And we're going to use Kubernetes as the orchestrator um, to do all of this. So what's the intelligence behind that? Like, where, when do we decide when to send it to cloud versus on-prem? Yeah. I mean, initially, this will be, you know, um, user-configurable uh, parameters, right? But, again, using things like machine learning, we'll, we'll learn over time that, you know, for these sorts of pipelines, you're better off being in the cloud, and for these, you're better off being on-premises. So we plan to learn that. Okay, so this is kind of a work in progress where we are gathering data currently so we can figure out the best ways to direct our data. Right. You know, we made this change from block storage to file storage, Um why that change? Like, why did we decide to go that route? 
Well, so uh, like I said, the big uh, thing was the, the efficiencies we gained, right? With with block storage, there was really no way to do um, this deduplication and compression. Now, of course, you can compress on the host, right? And people do that all the time. Right. But, so but you, you know, this was the 11 times efficiencies, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so people do compress data before writing it to HDFS, but then you pay the price uh, on your compute nodes, right? You eat up some of that resource to, to run your compression algorithm. Um, whereas, you know, on our storage systems, because, you know, we've spent many years perfecting this, we can, we can do very good compression at very high speed without really hit to performance. And then because this is NFS, um, you, you know, your data is available from all the nodes. You know, I, I forgot to mention one very important thing. I, I, we've, been, we've been sharing this, what we built with customers, and the interest has been, you know, surprisingly uh, very good. Um, we've spoken to the largest banks, the largest retailers. In fact, we have a POC going on with one of the biggest banks in Europe, right? They really like this architecture of consolidating on flash on-premises and being able to burst into the hybrid cloud for things like QA and machine learning. And, and they're replicating the same thing for themselves. So as we started explaining what we were doing to customers, you know, the cool thing is whenever you have something and you share it with, you know, 30, 40 customers, somebody always comes up with a clever idea that you've never thought of. And one of our customers, a bank, decided to use our NFS connector actually to back up Hadoop. So it turns out that doing a backup of your Hadoop cluster is not fun. And by the way, we know this from our own experience. Uh, there's a program called this CP that people typically run. Uh, it's very compute intensive. Um, you know, it's unstable in many ways. Um, so, you know, people tend to use proprietary solutions that are expensive. But what, what we can do now is essentially, once we use our um, ONTAP uh, flash array for storing uh, our HDFS data, we can use SnapMirror and, you know, very seamlessly copy that off somewhere else. The second thing we can do is we can tier that data. You remember when you have petabytes of data like we do, um, no one's ever computing on you know petabytes every single day. Uh, you, you tend to be, there's some fraction of your data that's hot, right? Maybe 5%, 10%. And the rest of it, maybe you tap into occasionally. So it doesn't make sense to put all of the data on one tier of storage. Um, and again, Hadoop's really never had a good story around, um, you know, tiering your data. So what we can do is we can we can seamlessly tier our data from this ONTAP array to storage grid using a technology called Fabric Pools. And the lovely thing about Fabric Pools is it preserves all of the the uh, efficiencies you had on the ONTAP array. So you know, all the deduplication and compression, all of that gets preserved. And we, in fact, deployed this in practice ourselves, and, and this bank we were working with decided to do the same thing, both for tiering as well as to back up their uh, Hadoop environment. And I'll, and I'll tell you one more use case. We had another bank that wanted to build uh, a Hadoop solution that was truly, uh, you know, uh, that, that could handle disaster recovery, right, instantaneously. So one side fails, you got to be able to spin up everything on the second side instantaneously. Now to do that, your data needs to be in sync across both these sites. 
uh, it, it's just impossible to do this with you know the Hadoop BCP command just because of the way it works. So we were able to deploy our Metro cluster solution um, to keep you know two on tap all flash arrays in sync with each other across two different sites, and and now you have Hadoop running on these two different sites, right? So it's it's truly a disaster recovery um, architecture. Yeah, and actually, you can do that now with ONTAP Select, right? So you can have your your HA failover across sites. Yep. So is that That's is right. that something we we're looking at doing? You know, leveraging some ONTAP Select in there as well, or is that just all going to be cloud uh, ONTAP? Not, not actively at this point. Okay, but yeah. if you're interested in the ONTAP Select piece, that's definitely there. And just to point out the yeah. fabric pull piece, the tiering. Um, so some people get that confused with DR or backup. And that's not really what that is. It's more of offloading your cold data to a cloud or S3 interface so that you're not eating up storage space and performance resources uh, and allowing your hot data to use all that. And it will come back if you need it, right? So if you need to, to access that data, it'll pull it back over through S3 and repopulate the aggregate. So it's really just an aggregate extension across cloud or S3 object. That's right. Yeah, so in fact, in our... Uh Data Lake, which is about four petabytes. Uh, we uh, keep, you know, about six months of data in our hot tier, which is our ONTAP flash array. Uh, the rest of it uh, moves off to this storage bit three or using uh, fabric pools. And, you know, occasionally when someone wants to run a job across all of this, they still can. And we've tested that. So what's the performance looking like when you need to pull it back? I mean, you, it sounds like you have a direct connection to your storage grid or your cloud. Is it pretty right. good performance with the with the fabric pool when you pull data back? I mean, you definitely there, there's definitely a uh, performance hit, right? Because uh, you are uh, sort of uh, moving data back from storage grid to your on tap array. There's there's definitely a hit in performance. But it doesn't matter if it's you know, an occasional use thing, and this is definitely not for our real-time use cases. Now, there is an alternative architecture that you can deploy, which we did not do, but but I've seen some people want to do this, which is you can have your on-tap all-flash array on-premises, apply all your deduplication and compression, all that good stuff. But now, instead of using uh, fabric pools, you can actually use something like CloudSync and copy the data to storage grid. Now, the advantage of this is that that copy that you made in, in storage grid, not only is also an archived copy and a backup copy, but it can be used directly for analytics, right? Um, and, and we've seen some people interested in this. Now, doing this, of course, doesn't preserve all the, the, the storage efficiencies you had on your ONTAP array, you lose that. But then the copy that you made in storage grid is actually useful in terms of being able to run analytics directly on it, um, you know, using our S3A connector. Yeah, because you can't really run the analytics on the S3 target for fabric pools. That's all still located on the right. primary storage. Um, That's right. So as far as storage grid and using that as for analytics, what about NASBridge? Is that something that you guys have played around with, or is that something that you haven't looked at yet? We haven't looked at that yet. Okay. So far, I've described our data pipelines and you know all the things we did to make our infrastructure more efficient. Uh, I want to switch gears and talk about machine learning itself. So it turns out that uh, you know if you want to do uh, 
machine learning on on logs. And what I mean by that is, you know, given a sequence of logs, you want to make some predictions. For example, you want to predict whether a system will fail or whether performance will get worse. Um, these things uh, turn out to be not so easy to do, and they're also not been very well studied in the literature. There's a little bit of work that you can find, you know, but most of the, the well-known work is around things like image processing, you know, speech recognition, uh, speech uh, translation, all of those sorts of things. So in this space, you find very little. So we're actually actively collaborating with some of the top universities in the U.S., um, and we're doing some pretty significant things on our own um, to, to improve the state of the art in terms of log analytics. Uh, you know, I'm hopeful, in the, again, in the next few months, by the end of this year, um, you'll start seeing some results from that, and, you know, we'll, we'll publish some papers as well. Okay, cool. So that sounds like we've got some more stuff coming down the pipe for people to look at and learn about. All right, Shankar, sounds like we've got a lot of exciting things going on with ActiveIQ and machine learning here at NetApp. Um, a lot of on-prem versus using the cloud. Uh, a lot of things to think about for people that want to do this sort of work. Um, if people wanted to ask you questions about the work we've been doing or some of the things that we've got coming down the pipe, how would they best reach you? Uh, so the best way is, you know, just uh, send me an email, firstname.lastname at netapp.com. Uh, always happy to answer questions about all of this. And we'll include that in the show notes. All right. So, uh, Shankar, thanks again for joining us today. Uh, anytime you want to come back on and talk about what you're working on, feel free. Yeah, thanks, Justin. All right. That music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher, or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Shankar Pasapathy for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.